0: You're listening to Patagonia Stories. I'm Archana Ram. This is my conversation with Vincent Stanley. He's Patagonia's director of philosophy and the co-author of The Future of the Responsible Company, what we've learned from Patagonia's first 50 years. The book is a part Patagonia memoir, part guide for businesses on how to do better by the natural world. Vincent co-wrote the book with Yvonne Chouinard, Patagonia's founder. In 2012, we published the first edition of The Responsible Company, now as Patagonia celebrates 50 years of business unusual, we're releasing a second edition. As Vincent explains, we've learned a ton in the last decade. Businesses that make environmental and social impact mandatory are vital to addressing the climate crisis. You can find a written version of this interview online at patagonia.com stories. Here's my recent chat with Vincent. What are some of the various roles you've
1: had here since the beginning? I started out as, a, uh, as an invoice typist and packer. And um, because I was a, not a surfer, I tended to answer the phones when the waves were firing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, was taking the dealer orders and uh, got tapped on the shoulder and said, okay, you're, you're sales manager now. And I said, what's that? And I was told you figure it out so uh i did I and mean, you know the the at that time we hadn't even really created patagonia yet it was chenard equipment um, but as a uh, a brand new sales manager i hired the reps and took us to our first trade show i did that for in two different stints and then i got i'm vocationally a writer when i got to be 40 i decided that um I, if I was going to be serious, I needed to teach myself how to write, and so I stepped down from the sales manager role. Actually, wrote copy for the company for uh, for a long stretch, and then came in to run the editorial department. Um, and for the past nine years, have had this role, uh, which is essentially to teach company history and values to employees, but seminar style it's in a way it's specific to patagonia i think other companies can can do things that are in line with their own history and with their own strengths i mean we Emo started teaching the philosophy classes in the late 1980s He took people by their functions so the finance people went together the sales people the marketing and the design production hr etc and sat around in a circle and talked about how is it that we want to do business? What do we believe in? I was sales manager at the time, so we talked about what kind of dealers we wanted to have, what kind of relationship we wanted to have in them, what we wanted the customer to experience in the stores, et cetera, et cetera. So when I talk about you know, talk about myself as a company philosopher, director of philosophy, it goes back to those days. I helped write the originals. I remember asking a, uh, a friend of mine, who is a real theologian, uh, <laughs> that uh, I said, "You know, I'm, I'm thinking of the title director of philosophy, but I, I don't know if I'm really entitled to use that." And he said, "No, it's okay."
0: <laughs> What's the point of releasing a new edition? Why release it?
1: Well, we um, we wrote the, the book in 2011, published it in 2012, so it's been more than a decade. The world has very much changed during that time. Um, there were the B Corp movement was very small. Uh, universities had only begun to start to institute sustainability programs, and uh, Patagonia was uh, well established in its practices, but had not nearly become. As serious about its activism as it has become in the past decade, mm-hmm. there, there's a lot of history to cover the past decade of how, of the changes in our company, but also primarily uh, good reasons to talk to other businesses. Mm-hmm.
0: In the book, you talk about several key moments that changed what you say changed our sense of the possible without knowing you were doing so. Like so. Yeah. Huge things were happening, but in the moment, you don't know these pivotal moments are happening. What do you think are some examples
1: of that? The first big example is when it was before Patagonia, when it was still Shadar Equipment, and uh, Evo and his business partner, Tom Frost, discovered that uh, pitons they manufactured, which were really the heart of the business, were damaging the rock, because as more climbers uh, came into the sport climbing those very popular routes every time they, hired, they hammered a piton and they uh, damaged the rock. And so the first big change was for Elon Tom to look at that and say, how can we change that? How can we deal with that problem? And they came up with the, the idea of chocks, which were used heavily in Britain by British climbers, that could be torqued into a crack without use of a hammer. The second would be the switch to organic cotton, which was really, really hard. But what really happened was that once we ordered the cotton from farmers, we broke our connection to the global supply chain. And I think what changed was that the, the culture itself of the whole company came in behind an environmental uh, action. And it succeeded. It took a couple of years mm-hmm. to, to work out because we lost sales we lost margin and then i think there's something there's something that happens in a culture once you take one step that you want to take the next so people within the product categories want they look at wetsuits they say how do we get how do we get rid of the neoprene limestone content how do we find an alternative and that really influenced the company's direction
0: we brought on fair trade in 2012, and that was after the original edition. Yeah. So, in that world of fair trade, what growth have you seen within Patagonia, but then also industry wide?
1: With fair trade, we started with nine yoga styles, and um, it was very successful. And I think it was successful for the workers because they had these factory jobs without a lot without a lot of sense of agency, and this enabled them to actually elect representatives who uh then talked with the workers about how are we going to how are we going to spend this bonus but then the the owners liked it because they had a level of engagement from the employees that they hadn't seen before Mm. so i think that's why it spread so much so it has spread um and most of our line i think is made now in fair trade certified factories it's a it's a a strong success it's taken uh, i think about seven or eight years to take ho- to to reach the point where it is now but i think it also advances the prospect of getting a living wage for mm-hmm. factory workers
0: and footprint launched in 2007 and yeah. that, that was a big role yeah. that you you played a big role in that and we've been out reporting on our own supply chain and then we discover stuff about our supply chain yeah. um is it hard to go public in those moments, um, or is that just a part of the radical transparency?
1: It was hard, you know, because you have, we, we were talking, again, we we don't make anything, so we're, when we say that there's a problem on the factory floor with some fabric we're making, or we're using, um, we're, we have to talk to our, we're engaging a supplier that we do business with. So we had some difficult conversations, and so the, You know, the first at the early stages, when you when you talk to your production people who have never been in that position, oh, you're gonna you're gonna put our relationship with our major supplier at risk. But when we got into it, it it worked out. I mean, there was a kind of a classic case with uh, Arvind, Mm -hmm. in which I remember those conversations really well. They, They were great, and so we. Yeah, we talked about it, and then we talked about, in the later edition, about the you know, solution to the problem. They'd spent quite a bit of money to do it. Mm. So I think in a way it helped us work with the suppliers toward better ends. One of the things that's interested me the most over the, over the past 30 years, as opposed to the first 20 years I was here, was that 20 years ago I would have been a lot more cynical Mm. about what we were capable of as a group of people, what our limitations were as a for-profit company. And what I've seen in the last 30 years has really surprised me in terms of the way we've been able to expand, we've been able to become more activists, we've been able to demonstrate a different way of doing business that actually made enough money to keep the company self supporting we outgrew Reno and our operations and our finance people are going out looking for a second warehouse location in the east they 're driving around with realtors in Tennessee and Pennsylvania, and they're being shown raw farmland mm-hmm. and they go you know for three hundred thousand square foot warehouse they're going no, we can 't do this mm-hmm. and so they they actually went and found a a non a non profit in uh, Wilkesbury to partner with and and built the warehouse on a on a converted coal mine. So I think that that's that has been a huge change, and I think that that means for the future of the company, for the next decade, it sets us up well to address the next big challenges, which I think are how to how do we move more from doing less harm to doing positive good.
0: If we if we're just focusing on emissions are we missing a bigger picture? Is decarbonizing actually the way we should be cleaning up a company, both us and another company? Or are carbon emissions a red herring?
1: I don't I don't think they're a red herring. They're very much a a part of the picture, but they're they're not they're not the they're not the whole story. Decarbonizing is Part of the story. I think personally, I get concerned that you could actually solve the climate crisis and still lose the earth Mm. if you're not paying attention to habitat loss and you're not paying attention to species extinction. And conversely, I think you really have to address the question of consumption um, along with replacement technologies. So, great, electric cars are wonderful, but um, as someone who's Pointed out that it, even if you re, if you replace the entire fleet of existing vehicles, you know, electrify them, and by 2040 you couldn't because we don't we don't have enough of the rare earth or the cobalt used for the technology. So I think we need a whole shift in consciousness toward recognizing, and you've all talked a lot about this, recognizing that we're a, a part of nature. What Aldo Leopold called a, a a plain member and citizen of the biotic community, that that's really critical to, to the change. So on the one hand, you can say, okay, we, we need to electrify the the economy, we need to decarbonize, and we need to green our cities. That's all absolute a given. Um, but it may be insufficient for what really needs to be done.
0: And I want to talk about things since the pandemic, because things have shifted all over the place. What is our role now in this changed landscape in the past three years and in this new addition? Like, what
1: would you want to tell people? I think one thing that's demonstrated that COVID was really hard for us, as for everyone, but I think for our culture, what was difficult is that this culture relies for its growth on its informality Mm -hmm. a lot, and so where you're... You took away a lot of the ways in which people are human with one another when you're not in the same room or you're not on a bicycle together or you're not camping on Pine Mountain on a Wednesday night. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, I think some of the some of the constraints that we've placed on ourselves have made us um, more resilient than a lot of other companies. A lot of companies really focus on efficiency. So what they were concentrating on was the efficiency of their financial performance, but that doesn't make you more resilient.
0: Like what is a business's responsibility since the pandemic? How has that changed? For what role does Mm -hmm. business have?
1: I think two things. I I think that we're in a time that's so serious that uh, every business as a citizen has an obligation to help solve the environmental and social problems we have. That's my kind of firm belief but at the very least businesses should be cleaning up after themselves Mm. so if we create environmental and social problems we need to uh, we need to address those in the course of doing business
0: Mm. and looking outward do you think there there are more responsible quote-unquote companies now than there were 10 years ago oh
1: yeah and that's a generational change
0: Mm. so Um, then there'll be even exponentially um, more and if you're going to have a third edition, what do you want to say in that? What do you, what's the hope for 10 years from now?
1: For the third edition that we could make, that we 10 years from now, that we could make some advances on what we're talking about now, that we could describe what it's like to more fully engage with the customers, to, to help with working with other forces in society to change ideas about consumption, um to make a goodly dent in, in uh, um, making where we live more livable and more planet-friendly. Um, and also to reducing... Uh, I would love to see uh, a change in the way we do politics. We need to look more holistically at the problems we face and to uh, may perhaps undertake fewer actions that actually achieve multiple ends. But the other thing I think we need to do is to recognize what are the most u- universally held values, and how do we, how do we appeal to people on the basis of that to overcome some of the differences that we have? Because mm-hmm. um, it's really hard. It's going to be really, you know, it's going to be very contentious. People sometimes ask me about uh, whether I'm optimistic or whether I'm hopeful, and I tell them, well, I think, you know, the most pessimistic person I know is evil. You know, <laughs> He <laughs> describes himself as a doom bat. You know, the whole world's going to hell, but it never stopped him. Mm-hmm. It never stopped him from doing what he th- thought was the right thing to correct the problem or the, or what he often terms it as an evil, and um, that that sense of agency is much more important than a sense of optimism. That you you go in to do to make the change because you think it's something that should be done rather than because you think it's gonna be possible to do. At Patagonia, we cover stories that range from the detailed gear needed for alpine climbing, to the fight for a sacred indigenous land, to the experiences of being inside an athlete's head. Sure, we're a company that makes gear for going outside, But we're also a company that cares about the future of the home planet. The stories we share here will hopefully inspire you to do the same, or just to make some time to go outside. See you next time for more stories to get you out there.